Okay. <laughs> Jeffrey. Jeffrey, they moved you over so I can't so look. <laughs> All right. This is our second series, uh, second lesson in the series on the book of Acts. <laughs> is it not loud enough? Is that good? Okay. Can y'all hear me back there? Okay. All right, this is... Uh, if you have your Bible or electronic device, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. This is our second lesson. We're in Acts chapter 2. Uh, hopefully you got my uh, message on Acts 2 this week. If you didn't, uh, just give me your, you know, I must have the wrong email or you haven't given it to me. But if you want the weekly message on, uh, on Acts, uh, let me have your email address and I'll put you on the list. And last week we saw the, the ascension of Christ to heaven and right before he went up, uh, he told the disciples to wait on some big event. It was going to change everything. It was going to be a totally new beginning. Kind of like the new beginning for Jerry when he hired a, a personal trainer <laughs> in today's <laughs> Mendelbaum. All right, uh, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is a, a big change that Jesus told them to anticipate the coming of the Holy Spirit would change their lives. And it, it would mark a, a tremendous transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Uh, the Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel all predicted that in the future God would give a New Covenant. He gave them the Old Covenant at Mount Sinai, if you remember, and it was a covenant of law. The new covenant would be a covenant of grace. So the transition uh, we see here in today's lesson from the old covenant to the new covenant, from Israel to the church, from the priesthood to the apostles, from law, the, the law covenant, to the covenant of grace. And so big changes uh, in uh, the, the Bible and in the way God is dealing with his people. So we see uh, in today's lesson it will be actually the birthday, the beginning of the church. Before Acts 2, there's no church. Now, today, there's going to be like an instant church. You're going to have a huge number of people come to Christ and literally begin the first church on record. They're in Jerusalem. A lot of people don't even realize the first church was all Jewish and was in Jerusalem. <laughs> You know, they think it was in Allen Park or something. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, so this mark, the mark of this new covenant church is the coming, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that literally changes hearts. That's the difference between how God deals 
with the people in the Old Testament. The Spirit is obviously omnipresent, the Spirit of God, and is effective and active in the Old Testament. But now in the New, tub, New Testament, the New Covenant, the work of the Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, is to change hearts. So people's hearts actually change. So we're told that now they, they had the law before, but now they actually have a heart for the law. A lot of people say, well, we're not under the law now. We don't have to keep the law. Well, that's, that's correct as far as uh, salvation is concerned. But the law is, is permanent. It is forever. I mean, you, you don't change the Ten Commandments, right? But what changes is your desire, the, that heart that you have, that inner commitment to obey God and follow the law is changed. And so now with, this, with the Spirit in Acts 2, uh, people's change, their hearts change, their desires change, their way of thinking changes. They literally are just new people, as, as the uh, New Testament often says. And also the mark of the New Covenant, as the Spirit comes upon the apostles, you'll see, is the preaching. Before this, they, they weren't into preaching. They, they hadn't done any preaching. You don't see the preaching. They go to the synagogues and they read the scripture and they do a whole bunch of religious ritual there in Jerusalem, both at the synagogues and at the temple. But there's really, you don't have this preaching that we're used to in our churches. And this is the beginning of that. The first sermon, really, is in this New Testament, in the New Covenant, is in Acts chapter 2 when Peter and the others go down in the street and begin preaching the word of God. And we have the, the uh, really the first sermon, certainly, of Peter right here in the first sermon of this new church entity that uh, we're studying. In chapter 2, when the Spirit comes on Peter, suddenly he's bold, suddenly he's got this desire to share the gospel, and he goes down in the, in the street and does so. An uh, interesting Greek word for the word that's used for that preaching of the gospel is kerygma. For, to me, it, I, was, I was reading about it, it just sounds like a cool word to me, I don't know. The, I thought you'd enjoy it. The kerygma, you know, it means literally the proclamation. But it really is a part of this New Testament and this change in the way God's dealing with his people. Suddenly you have these preachers that are preaching the gospel. And that's the kerygma. That is the brand new thing in the, in the New Testament, uh, in the New Covenant. So the kerygma is literally the, the proclamation of the gospel, the ministry of Jesus Christ, what he came to do and what he accomplished. The core, and it's the core message of the Christian faith. It's who Jesus is and what he did, what he accomplished on, on our behalf. So in Luke chapter 4, you know, if you're, Luke is probably the gospel, the only gospel that really goes along with the timing, you know, the uh, timing of every event is followed closely, I think, in the Gospel of Luke. And so right after his baptism in the Gospel of Luke in, in chapter 4, he goes into the synagogue in his hometown and gives his first message. And he stands up there in the synagogue uh, at Nazareth, and the text says there that Jesus returned there in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he left as a carpenter, and then he's introduced at the river by John the Baptist, and he comes back in the power of the Holy Spirit, and now it's all about preaching the gospel. So it says, he returned in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he began teaching 
there in the synagogue and he read from the prophet Isaiah a messianic prophecy about the coming of the Messiah and what the Messiah would do. And it says, we read, God anointed Jesus to preach the gospel there, to proclaim the favorable time of the Lord. And then he stood up and said, today, that's today. That is fulfilled in me today. The, the prophets that, that predicted, that prophesied about the Messiah have all been filled, fulfilled by me. And if you remember, they were shocked because they say, wait a minute, this guy grew up down the street. I knew his parents, they're carpenters down there. They put in our kitchen cabinets. <laughs> there is no way that this guy's the, the son of God and the and Messiah, you know. So they basically run him out of Nazareth, and that's where Jesus said no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But that was the beginning of this proclamation ministry uh, that the apostles would carry on in, today, in here in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit of God came on them also. Well, what is that message? I, uh, basically, it's this, that Jesus conducted a wonderful ministry, doing good works and calling everyone to believe in him that Jesus was crucified as a sacrifice for our sins. He was raised from the dead, exalted by God, and is coming back to judge the dead and to separate the sheep from the goats. He'll restore all things. You could, you could even call it paradise regained. You know, when God created, everything was perfect, and then you had the original sin and the fall, and everything was corrupted. But now Jesus will come back in the future, and he'll restore all things in that sense. Paradise regained. Therefore, all who hear should repent and believe and publicly profess Christ as their Savior. That's kind of the short version of the kerygma, of the gospel message. Everybody has sinned and needs uh, this sacrifice that Jesus has made on their behalf. And by personally believing and accepting Christ as your, sacri as your sacrifice, as your Savior, uh, this will be yours. You take this as well in that belief. One theologian said this kerygma is the irreducible essence, the irreducible essence of Christian preaching. It should be, his point is, it should be in every sermon, right? It should be in every sermon. Of course, one, what's the problem with that? Uh, it, of course, not your church, but today that the modern uh, preachers, they typically have some agenda, they typically have some message uh, some topic or subject they're, they're trying to preach. And so they'll lay it out there and then they'll use maybe some Bible passages to back it up or something. Uh, that's kind of the typical sermon today, actually, being preached in the, in the churches. But I think the, the correct sermon, the original sermon, and the way that God intended it, the kerygma, has always got the gospel message as its core and it's always about Christ. I don't know if you take uh, Jim Dennison's devotional every morning it's really great. Uh, I read it every morning and uh, he had a, a message uh, about a devotional about this and he was talking about that large church in Houston that's got like 25,000 people and I think it's Joel Osteen's church and uh, his, his wife uh, Joel said he's real politically correct and everything, so it's really kind of hard to figure out what he actually believes. 
but it's kind of the power of positive thinking. And I don't mean that critically. I'm just. But his wife kind of came out and explained it very. And and uh, if you look at uh, Denison's sermons, you can see her sermon right there. He 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 published it, and her message was basically, you know, the Bible and the gospel is actually about us. It's to build us up. It's for us to find our total and complete self, right? And so basically she was saying that the, the gospel, in, in her view, what she believed, is man-centered. It's man-centered. But of course we see in the truth in Acts 2 and all through the New Testament that the gospel is always Christ-centered. That's the message. And that's the message that should be preached from all the churches uh, at not only then, but certainly now as well. And so that, that's the problem. And I think, you know, when you read, when you, I find myself, and I think you should do the same thing. When you're listening to a sermon, no matter where you are, whatever preacher it is, you should be listening for the gospel. It should be there. It should be Christ-centered, all about him and not about us. I mean, a lot of people go to church maybe to be built up, to get a motivational speech or they want somebody to tell them you're a good person and you're wonderful and you can do it and uh, on and on and tell you how great you are and hopefully by the time you leave there you, you leave there happy you know until you go out, out there and something awful happens and you, you go wait a minute but uh, you know I was thinking about that that feel good message that's so popular now today and I was thinking well, wait a minute think about this all the people that preach sermons, think about what was John the Baptist's sermon? You need to repent because you're a rotten sinner. <laughs> you need to get ready for the Savior. And when you think about it, really all the messages, what was Jeremiah's message? You think Jeremiah was saying, I'm okay, you're okay? No, he came to Jerusalem and he said, this place is rotten to the core. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and... Uh, Noah, how about Noah? He preached for like 120 years or something. What do you think his message was? Don't worry about a thing. Everything's good. Something good is going to happen today. Do you think that was Noah's message? No, I don't think so. How about Nebuchadnezzar? How about when Daniel was preaching to Nebuchadnezzar? Remember when Daniel in uh, chapter 4 had that dream and he went to Nebuchadnezzar and he said, you better get your head back on straight. You better humble yourself and believe in the Lord because he's coming for you. And of course he did there, he did there in chapter 4 and just crushed him, right? So the message, and we we're going to see it again today, they're going to ask him, he's going to say, you are the one that crucified Christ. And they're going, whoa. So this is not a feel-good message about how great I am. This is a message, the kerygma, the gospel, is about how good Christ is. And what he did. And believing in that, it, that should change our lives. See? So it's, it's, it's really a, you, you, it's a lowering of yourself and a raising of him. Used, life used to be all about me, but it needs to be all about Christ. And that's what the sermons in all of our churches should be about. So, uh, in chapter 2, you're going to see three really big events, three amazing things are going to happen in this one chapter. First of all, the Spirit of God is going to come upon them. 
visibly, audibly, and they're even going to experience the, the filling, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as well. Uh, second, the first sermon. Peter's going to go down and give the first sermon of the apostolic age, the, the church. And of course, as I said, it's the birth of the church. This event marks the birth of the church. A lot of people think the church was born when Jesus came or whatever, but actually it was not born. There was, there was no church before the Holy Spirit came. You've got these 120 people in the upper room waiting for something. They're not doing anything. They're not doing any church activities. They're not preaching. They, got, they do nothing until the Spirit comes and then they're moved. They're inspired, right? They're empowered. And so they go out boldly and preach the word. And uh, so something brand new is happening here, these three big events in this one chapter. Uh, if you remember, Jesus during the Last Supper in John 14 through 16 had promised them another helper. They were worried about Jesus leaving. And he says, don't worry about me leaving. It's really going to be for your benefit. Because when I leave, I'm going to send you a helper, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, so that you now will have the baton, you'll actually carry on the ministry. So God is going to use you greatly, which is a fantastic thing. They had just been following Jesus around trying to figure out what was going on. Now it was going to be them out there doing things, them experiencing the grace and the glory of God as they were involved in all these activities. So that's what Jesus was talking about. He said, Greater things will you do than you have seen me do. Which is, wow, what a statement. But we find out what he means in today's lesson when they go out and preach and 3,000 people come to Christ, believe in their message, and are saved. So in that sense, they certainly did do greater things. And this, this is all going to happen because of, you, you ever heard the word, uh, you, you probably used it, the word catalyst. Maybe I thought, think about what that meant. But that's what they needed. They wanted to do something, but they were just kind of scared and didn't feel like they were qualified. They needed a catalyst. What is a catalyst? Something that induces a major change. You put it in, mix, mix it up with something else, and it changes it. That's what they needed, and that's what the Spirit of God was, is a catalyst to move them, to change them, and take them out, empower them to do what Christ had called them to do. And then all this is going to happen in, in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, which is perfect because it was that feast where all the men all around the Mediterranean world, were, all the Jews, were required to be in Jerusalem. And since they're all there, millions of them, it's the perfect time for them to go out in the street and start preaching the gospel. They've got a ready-made audience. God's timing works pretty good, right? Absolutely. And so in chapter 2, here, here uh, we see when the day of Pentecost had come, by the way, the word Pentecost means 50, so it was 50 days after the Passover is, is where that comes from. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together, just like Jesus had said, stay here in the upper room waiting for this big event. And here it comes, suddenly, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. So they heard it. They heard this big noise and it was like totally everybody was aware of it. And then they saw something. 
And the noise filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared. So they not only hear it, now they see it. There appeared to them as fire, tongues of fire, uh, distributing themselves on each person. So each person saw this fire, what would look like fire. It was actually probably the glory of God that entered them. And you say, well, you know, when I believed in Christ, that didn't happen to me. I didn't hear this rushing wind and say a fire come on me. Well, it was necessary because of that transition. Remember we talked about the incredible time of transition from the old to the new, the Israel to the church. Well, how are they going to know that that happened unless they experienced it in this way? So God allowed them, it was necessary that they hear and see and experience it so they would understand and know that it happened, right? We don't need that. We have the Word of God, and we know that when we believe in Jesus, that His Spirit indwells us, right? And we change as well. But it was necessary during the period of transition for them to see and hear and experience it. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And that, that word fill in Greek has to do with control. They were all controlled by the Spirit. They were moved by the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. That word tongue is glossa in, in Greek. is typically used for known languages. They suddenly, uh, why would they need to speak a, a bunch of other languages? Because they were just there together. What, what's this all about? Well, remember, who's outside? Men from all over the Mediterranean world, northern Africa, Rome, Greece, Asia Minor, Syria, all over, all different languages. And so when they went out, they were able, these fishermen from Galilee that probably had about a sixth grade education were able to go out there and speak all these people's languages and share the gospel with them. So it, it was an experiential thing. They, they experienced the, the filling of the Spirit in this way, that they were going out in this period of transition to do this. So they experienced, they saw it, they heard it, and they experienced it. And there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. So they were there for the Pentecost, and they were from all over the place. And when this sound occurred, the multitude, you hear all that noise, all that wind? And they all came looking to see what it was. Uh, so they came out there in the street, and they were bewildered because they were each one hearing the apostles speaking in his own language, in that person's language. Who are these guys? This is, this is wild. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, wait a minute, these are those Galilean guys. Those guys aren't educated. They don't know different languages. And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And by that, I think it means they not only heard them speaking that language, but it was with the accent and the dialect and everything. It's as if these guys uh, grew up in my country. But I know they're Galileans. This is wild. And he gives you some of the people from all the different places. You had Parthians, those are Persians. You had Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia up there in modern-day Iraq and Iran. Uh, they were from everywhere. Uh, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, uh, Libya, Rome, and on and on. Both Jews and proselytes. So 
uh, proselytes would be Gentiles that were converted to Judaism. They were all there, and they're all hearing all this and seeing it. Cretans and Arabs, Cretan is not a, a derogatory name. They're from the Isle of Crete, rest assured. That's all they were hearing them all speak, and, and, and they were talking about, what were they talking about? They were talking about the greatness and the wonderful plan of God, everything that God's done. It was all about them, about, about the Lord, of course. And they continued in amazement, all the people. And so what's going to be the net effect? A big crowd is going to gather to hear the preaching, the sermon of Peter. It's amazing how these things work out, right? Just total coincidence. I don't think so. But uh, there is opposition in verse 13. Others were saying, no, these people, there's something wrong with these guys. They're all crazy. They're all drunk or something. But, but Peter, taking his stand, and so I, uh, I, I'm not positive, but I mean the best place for this to have happened, and if you've been there, you, you know what I'm talking about, is the southern steps. You've got that big temple mount, and you walk up those steps to the temple, right? It's still there. The very steps that Jesus walked on, they've uncovered them. They're actually there. And uh, if you've been there, you've seen them. And there's this big open area in, you know, uh, kind of a plaza in front of those steps. And so all these people from all over the world were there for Pentecost, and they're down there in the street below the southern steps. Well, all Peter had to do was walk up a couple of steps. Now he had an immediate podium, and he starts preaching to all these people right there that are gathered. And they're all, he's got... He's got their attention because they're doing all these amazing languages and stuff. Trying to figure out what is going on. Who are these guys? How are they doing that? And so Peter explains. Here's the sermon. Taking his stand with the eleven, he raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you, you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. You wondering what's going on? Let me tell you. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. They weren't allowed to drink till noon, I think. <laughs> but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. So the first thing he says is, the coming of the Holy Spirit was predicted by the prophets. And so he quotes Joel saying, it shall be in the last days. By that he means the last era, the last epoch before the coming of Christ, which is the church age that we live in, that, that was begun right here. I will pour forth of my spirit upon mankind. And so uh, Joel predicted it, and so you shouldn't be surprised about it. This is the coming of the spirit uh, during the church age. And he goes on and goes all through there. In those days, I will pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. They shall be God's, you know, prophecy is. It's they're God's spokespersons. A prophet is God's spokesperson. We always associate it with predictions, but that's not necessarily so. It's just someone who's speaking for God, speaking the words of God for him. All right? And look at verse 21. Just jump down to that. That's kind of, verse 21 is kind of the net, the bottom line. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who believes 
then the provision of God for their sin shall be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. He was right here in Jerusalem. You saw him. He had a ministry in the Galilee and he came here for all the feasts and festivals and he preached up there on the Temple Mount. Many of you saw him, heard him, saw the miracles. So you know this guy did all this stuff. You know him. You saw him. Well, guess what? This man, Jesus, was delivered up the, the crucifixion by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God and you nailed to a cross, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. Analyze verse 23 here for a bit. We talked in this class many times and you may have discussed it uh, elsewhere, but the, the association, uh, the how you balance the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. The sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Both are true. There's an abundance of both going on in the Bible and all the stories of the Bible. And this verse 23 has got both. Look at this. The predetermined plan. God planned this whole thing out. He sent Jesus into the world, the incarnation. He accomplished that by his will and also at his timetable. And Jesus was offered up, according to God's plan, to die for our sins. That was all planned, known, and accomplished by God. But look also, he says, it's your fault. <laughs> you did it. You, you rejected him and you crucified him. Well, how can both be true? Well, I'll let you all figure that out. No, but uh, it is up to each of us to try to figure out how the balance of that, how that works. Clearly, we're responsible for our belief or our unbelief. We're responsible for all the mistakes we made or the sin that we've committed. We're responsible. We're held accountable. The Bible's clear on that. But at the same time, God has a plan that he has mapped out and willed to happen, even determined it. To happen. A lot of people don't like that word predetermined. But you've got to admit that how did he get here? How did Jesus get here? God determined it. He accomplished it. So in some sense, it was predetermined. I don't care what denomination you go to. You know that's true. Right? But at the same time, the accountability is still there for us. So that free will part of it is, is equally true. And you've got to figure out yourself how to balance that out. But what he's saying is God accomplished this great thing that Jesus did on the cross to save us, the atonement, to save us from our sin. And we are held responsible for it such that if we don't accept God's pardon through Christ, it's on us. It's on us, right? So this man who was delivered up by the plan of God, you 
put him to death. And so you better watch out. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what he's saying. You're in big, deep, dark doo-doo? <laughs> Trouble? Yeah. Because look what's happened. God raised him up from the dead. God raised him up, the resurrection, putting an end to the agony of death. He overcame death. He defeated death, which is proven by the resurrection. He's alive. The grave couldn't hold him since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And this vindicated everything he said about himself, and it vindicated the gospel that they were preaching, that it is true. He is alive. And he's going to quote scripture. Don't you love the way he uses scripture? He's going to, he uses it three, three ways. One is the fulfillment of the coming of the Spirit. Two is the resurrection here. Uh, and, I, you know, and he quotes from, I believe, the Psalms here uh, that David wrote, verse 25, for David says, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades. So what is he doing? He's quoting Jesus speaking with God in the Godhead. Jesus is saying, I knew, Lord, God, God the Father, you would not abandon my soul to Hades, but I would be resurrected. And you would not allow thy Holy One, Jesus, to undergo decay. The resurrection. And now has made known to me the ways of life that will make me full of gladness with thy presence. And so he will be in the presence of God. And so he's quoting uh, David there predicting the, the prophecy of the resurrection. And so he says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. So he's not talking about himself. And his tomb is with us to this day. You want to go over here, I'll show you the grave. And guess what? He's still in there. So he's not talking about himself. He's talking about the resurrection of Christ, clearly. And so because he was a prophet, David was a prophet, a spokesperson for God, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to, to seat one of his descendants upon his throne. He had told David, that's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David, I'm going to make you a promise, and your heir, talking about the Messiah, will sit on the throne and rule forever. And that's what he's saying here. This, this was Jesus. So he was neither, verse 31, abandoned to Hades, nor did he, his flesh suffer decay. He was resurrected. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. We were there. We saw the resurrected Christ. All these men that you hear, you see with me today, Peter says, we all saw him. We're all witnesses to it. And you can go up there right now, I'll tell you where the tomb is, and you'll see that it's empty. This is powerful stuff. These guys are just, can you believe this? They're all standing out there in the street listening to this. 
This, this Jesus God raised up again, if you're all witnesses, therefore. By the way, let me ask you a question. We, we talked about God, this was God's plan, and, and God delivered him up. Why was he represented as such a victim? Why didn't he, like, escape? <laughs> if he's got all this power, I mean, he was made out like he didn't have any power. Like they took him. And they convicted him falsely, and he couldn't do anything about it. And they crucified him, and he couldn't get away. No. This was God's plan. God gave him up. He wasn't a victim. He was delivered up by God's foreordained plan. It was God's design that it be done this way and at this time. So you've got this paradox of divine intervention divine predestination plus human free will at the same time that, that, are, that must be balanced because they're both equally true. So verse 33, he says, Therefore, having been exalted, so after the resurrected, after he's resurrected, we saw last week in chapter 1, he was ascended to heaven. He ascended to heaven. And so that's that's a pretty amazing thing. He ascended to heaven and the Spirit of God descended from heaven. In a fairly short time later. All according to God's plan. God's doing something. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit that he was going to send the Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. You heard that when, and you hear me preaching the gospel, and this is all according to the plan of God. That's what this is. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself, so now he's going to quote that third scripture of David, and this one is to defend the deity of Christ. Jesus sits at the right hand at the throne of God as God. In the same essence of God. And so he quotes from Psalms, David writing, talking about the Lord God the Father, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So the the two words you have there for Lord, in, in Greek the first word is actually what we call Jehovah or Yahweh, that covenant name that God gave Israel for those who are in relationship to him. And the second word is Adonai, which means Lord. So Yahweh said to my Lord, Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. So sit here with me until that time in which you come back and conquer the world, when you come back the second time as the conquering king and set up the kingdom of God. Meantime, meanwhile, sit right here at the throne of God. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. God the Father made Jesus, in the, after the ascension, sit on the throne, you are Lord and Christ. The difference is, uh, Lord, you know the definition of Lord. Christ means 
the anointed one of God. So you are the anointed one that God sent in the world to save us. This Jesus whom, here it is again. <laughs> He's pretty, think how bold this is. This is this one Galilean guy standing up on the steps of the temple and there's thousands of, of these Jews down, you know, on the, in the market, in the plaza there. And this guy again says, this Jesus Christ whom you crucified. You did it. Well, I think we could expect one of two responses. They're either going to come get him and hang him, or they're going to be convicted by it. They're going to be convicted by it. You can imagine the suspense that Peter felt. I wonder which one they're going to go with. <laughs> right? Do you remember, again, back in, in, I think, John 16, the upper room discourse, that Jesus was telling them the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and he said the first thing the Spirit will do when you preach, the Spirit of God will convict the world, meaning unbelievers, of their sin. That's exactly what happened. All these sinners down there, the first time are totally convicted of the truth of his message about who Jesus is, what he did and their responsibility their sin in the matter and so it says in the next verse now when they heard this they were pierced to the heart convicted what have we done and what can we do to undo it what can we do? You know, they say, once you ring a bell, you can't unring the bell. Right? That's true in everything except the gospel. The gospel is you can unring that bell. You can undo that sin. You do get, in a sense, a do-over based on what Christ has done on the cross. And so when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they asked Peter, what shall we do? How can we be saved? This is a question everyone, not only here, but everywhere in the world, needs to ask this question and have it answered. What shall we do? How can we be saved? How can we be forgiven and saved? Is the question they ask. Well, how, do, how does the world answer this, by the way? If you go out in the world and you ask that question, how can we say, the Buddhists will say, do, oh, I'll tell you what, do the eightfold path. The Hindu, they'll say, well, it's all about karma. You know, you lead a good life and then you get reincarnated and you'll get a little better and better. Hopefully you don't ever get a bad one there that throws you back. The Jews had the law that they, they said they were keeping. They still believe that. The Muslims have the five pillars that they try to keep. And what are they all trying to do? All these people are trying to offer a way to personally earn approval by their own works. How's that working for them? They're just like these guys in the street. 
They're sinners. They're doomed. They're going to be judged. What must we do? And so Peter's answer, verse 38, thank goodness there's an answer, right? Repent. That's a Greek word, metanoia. We get our word metamorphosis, which is a complete change. So a change of mind here. You used to think you were saved by works of keeping this religion or whatever it is you believed in. Now change your mind and know something different, that Jesus has died for you and you need to believe in him and now live for him. Repent and let each one of you be baptized. Go up here, and what is baptism? But it's a proclamation of your faith. It's a public proclamation of an inner faith. You're not saved by the baptism, but it's an important part of what you do in saying, okay, I believe. Why was it such a big deal? Why is it made such a big deal here? Because all the other verses about baptism, it doesn't seem to be that big a deal, and it's, and it's very clear that you're not saved by baptism. He almost makes it sound like he, you are. And it, but it was important here because these are all Jews who've grown up in this institutionalized religion, and it's very important for them to stand up publicly and say, I forsake that, and I believe in Jesus as my Savior. And that's what they did. And that's another reason we know it was at the Southern Steps, because archaeologists have uncovered hundreds of these baptismal pools, little tiny swimming pools that they used to baptize as a cleansing ceremony before people went up on the Temple Mount to make their sacrifices. And so that was just right there. Okay, boys, everybody hop in. It was a perfect place. Imagine that. And so he tells them, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit just as we have. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved, believe, be saved from this perverse generation, this generation that's separated from God. Separate yourself from them and attach yourself to Christ. What did they do? Verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Day before, no church. This day, instant church. Is that awesome? It really is. The incredible thing that happened there uh, to, to this. And it's that period, that great transition, again, from the old to the new, Israel to the church. Law to grace, the whole thing. It's amazing. And it's all based on believing in what Christ has done. So the sermon, Christ centered. Our message to the world, Christ centered. Right? And when their baptism, when you know, when you're baptized, what, what do they say? What is your profession of faith? I believe in Jesus as my Savior. You may have heard the story, true story. Uh, Sam Houston, you know, the 
governor of Texas, the great hero of San Jacinto. Uh, when he got older, you know, he'd been a wild man. You know, <laughs> drink anybody under the table, womanizer, the whole deal. And he was converted late in life, and the Baptist minister took him down to the river to be baptized. And after he pulled him back up out of the river, the preacher said, Sam, all your sins are washed away. And Sam said, God help the fish. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word, with this first sermon, with the beginning of the church, the benefits of which we all partake in, and we praise you, Lord, and we thank you for preaching that same message to us that we could believe and have Jesus as our Savior and know our future in heaven with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.